Welcome to Why 4 from Jim Hill Media. I'm your host, Jim Hill, and I'm here to answer your questions about the Walt Disney Company and its competition in the fields of theme entertainment and animation. This time around, I'll be following up on our October 2016 show, which, as you'll recall, started out as this Halloween-specific podcast about the Disney version of The Headless Horseman, but then somehow mutated into an exploration of the work of Washington Irving. Now, since that show was posted on Bandcamp, some Disney Dish listeners have reached out and asked if I had any additional information about that live-action animated version of Riff Van Winkle that Walt wanted to make with Will Rogers. Sadly, all that info is salted away in Disney's ARL, which is the company's animation research library. But I promised that the very next time I'm inside that climate-controlled high-security building, I'll then ask them about whatever material they have filed away on this abandoned project from 1933. But that said, if you want a taste of what a feature-length version of this Washington Irving story might have been like, I suggest you head over to kiddierecords.com. That's K-I-D-D-I-E, by the way, not K-I-D-D-Y. Anyway, once you're there, select the 2005 tab at the top of the Kitty Records homepage. And then, after going halfway down the 2005 page, you'll find an image of a DECA record from 1946 where Academy Award winner Walter Houston voices Riff Van Winkle. And if you click on that, you'll get to listen to this genuinely charming version of that Washington Irving story. Now, where this particular recording, it has a fascinating pedigree. I mean, for starters, the script of this retelling of Rip Van Winkle was written by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee, who, back in the 1940s, were just two guys working in radio. But if you jump ahead 10 years, you find that Lawrence and Lee are now the toasts of Broadway, largely because in 1955, they wrote Inherit the Wind, and then in 1956, Lawrence and Lee followed up that acclaimed legal drama with the popular stage comedy Auntie Mame. And speaking of Broadway, I, it's kind of intriguing that Walter Houston was selected to be the voice of Rip Van Winkle in this Kitty Rick record, uh, given that back in 1938, Houston actually played the lead of Knickerbocker Holiday, which was this hit Broadway musical that was based on Washington Irving's Father Knickerbocker stories. And, you know, I just like Dirk gently likes to say, folks, it's all connected. Anyway, the real reason I'd like you folks to seek out this 1946 Decker recording of Rip Van Winkle is, well, guess who they got to voice one of the weird little men that Rip encounters high up in the Catskills? It's Arthur Q. Bryant, the original voice of Elmer J. Fudd. And as a longtime Fudd fan, I have to tell you that one of the real pleasures of listening to this kitty record was hearing Mr. Bryant sing... Whip and wink, all whip and wink. Have a whittle, have a whittle, cat skilled wink. Sorry, channeling my inner fud. <laughs> anyway, I also got some emails from Disney Dish listeners who just couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that Walt could so quickly pivot away from working on Rip Van Winkle with its weird little men who live so high up in the cat skills to. Snow White and, and her seven little men who work so deep down in that mine where a million diamonds shine. But but to hear Disney legend Dick Sherman talk, something similar almost happened on Mary Poppins. Those of you who saw Saving Mr. Banks back in 2013 will no doubt recall that in 
1961, Peel Travers was kind of putting Walt through the ringer when it came to Disney Studios formally acquiring the film rights to a Mary Poppins books. And this situation greatly upset the Sherman brothers, largely because they'd just spent the past year writing a pretty ambitious score for Mary Poppins, and Bob and Dick just hated the idea to think all of this hard work was now going to go to waste. But Walt told the Sherman brothers not to fret that these things would work out in the end. And even if they didn't, even if Pamela walked away without formally granting Disney the film rights to her Poppins books, Walt had a backup plan. Uh, You see, in this exact same window of time, Disney Studios had optioned two other magic-based books, Mary Norton's The Magic Bedknob, which was first published in 1943, and then her follow-up story, Bonfires and Broomsticks, which was published in 45. Truth be told, what the mouse did was they acquired the movie rights to the omnibus edition to these two Mary Norton books, which were published in 1957 with the smushed-together title Bedknob and Broomstick. Anyway, as uh, Mr. Sherman told me a year or so back during a phone interview, as he was expressing his frustrations to the old maestro about uh, how difficult Mrs. Travers was being, Walt said, don't worry about it, Dick. I've just bought another book that features magic. If we can't get Pamela to officially sign over the movie rights to Mary, we'll just plug all the songs that you boys wrote for Poppins into that film. So as you can see, Walt hated wasted effort. Hell, when he was working with the story team on Disney's animated version of The Jungle Book back in 1960s, and those guys were genuinely struggling to come up with some comic bits of business that Ka the Snake could do in that scene where he hypnotizes Mowgli. Walt suddenly remembers The Land of Sand, which was the song that the Sherman brothers had written for a magic compass sequence that was developed for Mary Poppins, which eventually wound up being cut from the film. Walt remembered that the tune that the Sherman brothers had written for The Land of Sand was rather exotic and hypnotic sounding, so he had Bob and Dick change the words that they had originally written for this tune, which is how The Land of Sand got turned into Ka's big number, Trust in Me. And while we're talking about recycled pieces of material, come to think of it, there was a song that the Sherman Brothers wrote for Mary Poppins that actually did wind up in Bad Knobs and Broomstick. Do you remember midway through the movie, there's this live-action animated number where Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson are dancing on the ocean bottom while this school of fish look on? Well, that song, The Beautiful Briny, had originally been written for that magic compass sequence that I previously mentioned for Mary Poppins. Um, so again, not to harp too heavily on that whole Dirk Gently thing. Uh, by the way, is there anybody else out there who's actually watching this new BBC America show? I think it sometimes gets a little too dark and violent for my taste, but overall, I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this Douglas Adams-inspired TV show. In the words of that sometimes not terribly wise holistic detective, it is all connected. Getting back, finally, to the Disney version of The Headless Horseman. This character was introduced in the studio's 1949 release, Ichabod, Mr. Toad. Wooly Ritherman, who'd eventually go on to be the grand poobah of Disney feature animation in the late 1960s, early 1970s, after Walt's passing, was the guy who did most of the work with the horseman and his steed in that film. And as anyone who ever saw Wooly's work with the T-Rex attack in Fantasia, or for that matter, the Maleficent as a dragon battling Prince Philip sequence from Sleeping Beauty will tell you. 
Reitherman had this real gift when it came to staging and then animating action sequences, which is why when Ichabod's being chased around the hollow by the horseman and, and that headless fiend is repeatedly slashing his saber at the frightened schoolmaster's head, that chunk of Ichabod and Mr. Told is a real tour de force, skillfully mixing big laughs and equally big scares. So now we jump ahead to 1956, where Walt, after recognizing that Disneyland really needs to expand to meet guest demand, especially when it comes to this theme park's hourly ride capacity, he turns to Ken Anderson, who, along with Wooly, is a member of Disney Animation Studios' core group of creatives, the Nine Old Men. Walt turns to Ken and says there's one thing that Disneyland is missing. It's got fun attractions, it's got rides that make you nostalgic, it's got shows that entertain and inform, but there's nothing in this park that thrills. So Disney puts Anderson to work on what he hopes will be Disneyland's first really for real thrilling experience, which was supposed to be this creepy old house that stood at the end of Main Street, USA, approximately where the Jolly Holiday Bakery Cafe now stands. Ken works with Harper Goff on this project. Harper did a lot of the early work on the Jungle Cruise, and this haunted house project gets pretty far along in Disney's development pipeline. So much so that in 1957, Anderson and Goff mocked up a full-size version of the finale that they wanted Disneyland's Haunted House to have. Ken and Harper actually filled the soundstage in the Disney lot with props and effects equipment so that they could then show Walt how what was then supposed to be a walk-through experience rather than a ride-through would climax. Okay, so picture this. You've just spent 10 minutes walking through Disneyland's Haunted House. You've already experienced four or five rooms that are tricked out with all sorts of amazing illusions. We're talking about things like ghostly footprints that start out by going across the floor, then climb the walls, and then race across the ceiling in front of you. Or better yet, a barnacle and seaweed-covered sea captain who, after appearing right in front of you in the dead center of the room, suddenly melts away, transforming into this puddle of seawater in the middle of the floor. But now you're in the Haunted House's Grand Ballroom, where, as you look out through the torn lace curtains that cover the floor-to-ceiling windows, you see the backyard of this discrepant manse contains the Blood family graveyard and its crypt. And as you're looking out those windows down into the backyard, the clouds overhead slowly part to reveal a full moon. And then somewhere nearby, a werewolf howls. And then wispy, ghost-like shapes start to rise from all those headstones, from, from the Blood Family crypt as well. And then you hear it. The pounding hooves of a fiery steed, and after a moment, this sound is followed by the images of the headless horseman himself, who, after rearing back on his horse, comes galloping across the backyard, heading toward the house. With the insinuation now being that, should he actually make it into the ballroom, the horseman is going to harvest a head off of one of the 40 or some odd people who are now standing in front of those windows, looking down at the Blood family backyard. Which is why now might be a really good time to vamoose by making use of one of this haunted house's many hidden passageways. That sounds like kind of an exciting climax, don't you think? Full of eerie imagery, but on a grand scale? Well... 
Ken and Harper had this all mocked up for Walt, and from what I've been told, by making use of some pretty artfully edited footage from this Legend of Sleepy Hollow portion of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which was then projected on this scrim that circled the soundstage, they did create the illusion that the Headless Horseman was thundering across the backyard of the Blood Family Manor. So if this effects test was so successful, and remember, this is 1957-era technology, why then didn't Walt go forward with construction of this early iteration of Disneyland's Haunted House? Well, while Ken had cooked up a good show with some strong individual scenes and illusions, Walt was looking for something great, a walkthrough that would genuinely wow visitors to his family fun park. Even though Disneyland was only two years old in 1957, Walt was already very concerned about capacity at his theme park, and based upon reports that were regularly crossing Disney's desk during this era in Disneyland history, walkthrough attractions were obviously not going to cut it, capacity or show quality-wise. There just had to be a better way to move hundreds of people per hour through Disneyland's continually growing assortment of ride shows and attractions. Which is why Walt took the money that he had set aside for Disneyland's first genuinely thrilling attraction and moved it from the walkthrough haunted house that Ken and Harper had designed to the park's first real thrill ride, which was the Matterhorn Bobsleds, which opened in June of 1959. Which isn't to say that the Imagineers entirely gave up on the idea of bringing the Headless Horseman into a Disney theme park. In the 1960s, as they were designing the Magic Kingdom for Project Florida, the folks at WED found themselves circling back on a number of concepts that had originally been created for Disneyland that, for one reason or another, had been shelved back in the late 1950s, early 1960s. One of these ideas, of course, was Liberty Street, which was originally supposed to be built out behind Disneyland's Main Street USA, and whose centerpiece attraction was supposed to have been One Nation Under God. Or, as this attraction was renamed in 1970 because Mouse House managers suddenly got nervous about how certain members of the public might react if the Magic Kingdom actually used the word God as part of the name of one of Disney World's opening day attractions, this attraction was the Hall of Presidents. Given that this part of the theme park was supposed to be a celebration of colonial America, the Imagineers then became concerned about how they'd properly transition people from the more fantasy-based sections of the Magic Kingdom to this area that then celebrated early American history. To the guests who were entering Liberty Square off of the hub, the solution was simple. Wed would just use a recreation of Old Concord Bridge to literally bridge that gap. Using a duplicate of the structure that Ralph Waldo Emerson described in his Concord Hem from 1837 thusly, the rude bridge that arched the flood, the flag the to April's breeze unfurled, here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. No disrespect to Mr. Emerson, but I don't think flood and stood actually rhyme. Anyway, that's how the Imagineers properly set the scene for what was to follow for guests entering Liberty Square by coming off of the hub. Whereas any guests who were entering Liberty Square from Fantasyland, that transition was genuinely problematic. 
You see, the attraction that these folks would first encounter if they'd walked past Small World and then turn left to go downhill past the Harbor House Restaurant Yankee Peddler Shop was the Haunted Mansion. And since this spooky attraction was wildly out of sync with the there is just one moon and one golden sun and a smile means friendship to everyone eh, philosophy of, of it's a small world. Well, well the Imagineers then began looking at some uh, sort of other attraction that could then serve as, well, a, a buffer between these two very different e-tickets. And in the end, the idea that the Wizards of Bwed came up with was a sleepy, hollow, dark ride, something that was silly enough that it could then be a good fit for Fantasyland, preserving that part of the park's family-friendly vibe, while still being scary enough that this Legend of Sleepy Hollow Dark Ride could then properly set the stage for the scares that these guests would soon be experienced if they dared to enter Disney World's Haunted Mansion. So how were the Imagineers supposed to make repeatedly encountering the Headless Horseman silly, you ask? Simple. Your ride vehicle for this Legend of Sleepy Hollow-based attraction was supposed to be a giant hollowed-out pumpkin. Not only that, but as you took your seat inside of this giant plastic gourd, um, you would have noticed at the very center of your ride vehicle, there was a wheel. A wheel just like the one you encounter whenever you climb into one of those oversized teacups over at the Mad Tea Party. This is supposed to be a traditional dark ride where your vehicle would then follow a buzz bar-based guard track past various show scenes that were then loaded with blacklight elements. The key difference here being that as you moved along the Legend of Sleepy Hollow ride path, you would have then been able to spin the pumpkin that you were riding in, which, which literally would have put a fun new spin on a Disney dark ride. And yes, just in case you're wondering, this was in fact where the Imagineers originally got the idea for Roger Rabbit Cartoon Spin, which the public first got to experience exactly one year after Mickey's Toontown officially opened at Disneyland Park in Anaheim in January of 93, and which was then recreated for Tokyo Disneyland Toontown, which opened at that theme park in April of 96. So why didn't Wed wind up building the Legend of Sleepy Hollow Dark Ride to serve as a buffer between Disney World's version of the Haunted Mansion and the Magic Kingdom's take on It's a Small World? It was actually Walt's brother, Roy O. Disney, who put the codbosh on this attraction. When the Imagineers were originally designing a second Disneyland theme park for Project Florida, they didn't want the Magic Kingdom to just be this carbon copy of the happiest place on earth, which is why instead of building a Pirates of the Caribbean clone and a second Matterhorn Mountains with its bobsleds for Orlando, what the Imagineers originally proposed for the Magic Kingdom was building an entirely different mountain, Thunder Mesa, which was modeled after those tabletop mountains you find in the American Southwest. Thunder Mesa was going to use all of its rock work to mask a truly massive show building, a structure so large that it was actually able to hold three separate attractions. There was Western River Expedition, which was going to be an audio-animatronic adventure extravaganza, much in the style of Pirates of the Caribbean, only this story would have been t built around comical cowboys and Indians. There would also have been a runaway train ride that would have zoomed through Thunder Mesa's caves, canyons, and crevasses. And yes, this attraction was the precursor of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. 
And finally, there was going to be an explorer canoe experience that would have ended with the, a dramatic trip down the face of a waterfall. And, and yes, this proposed Frontierland attraction, while it was attempting to recreate the thrill of the bobsled splashing down of that alpine pond at the base of Disneyland's Matterhorn Mountain, was really kind of a first pass on Splash Mountain. But you get the idea, right? The Imagineers wanted to create all new attractions for Florida that weren't copies of what could be found at Disneyland Park in Anaheim, but could still deliver equivalent entertainment and thrills. And when it came to Fantasyland, again, to the Fantasyland that we originally envisioned for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, well, Snow White's Scary Adventure, Mr. Cho's Wild Ride, and Peter Pan Flight were nowhere to be found. And in their place, well, in the place of the silly fun that you, you get while experiencing Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, the Imagineers wanted to build Wizard's Duel, which would have put riders right in the middle of Merlin and Mad Men and Mim's magical battle from the Sword in the Stone. Now, the best part of this dark ride would have come at the very end of Wizard's Duel, which, as you were heading to this Fantasyland Attractions offload area, you were supposed to have parried past the series of highly polished shields which was when you were supposed to realize that you had at some point during this dark ride obviously gotten caught in the crossfire between Mim and Merlin. For as you looked at your reflection, as your ride vehicle rolled past these highly polished shields, you would have seen some sort of magical creature, a drake, dragon, or a griffin, or the like, sitting in your seat aboard this ride vehicle. And just in case you're wondering, yes, the Imagineers, what they wanted to do here was kind of a reprise of the Pepper's Ghost effect at the end of the Haunted Mansion, where a hitchhiking ghost is supposed to follow you home. Now, in place of Peter Pan flight, what many people consider to be the most beautiful of the Fantasyland dark rides, what the Imagineers wanted to build was a Sleeping Beauty ride through that would have then recreated many of the distinctive settings that Ivan Earl designed for 1959 Walt Disney Animation Studios release. And finally, in the place of Snow White's Scary Adventure, what Fantasyland at Disneyland's Magic Kingdom would have gotten instead was The Legend of Sleepy Harlow Dark Ride that I described earlier in this podcast. So, so why weren't this trio of three Fantasyland Dark Rides built for Project Florida? Well, given that Roy had been for decades the guy who held the purse strings at the Mouse Factory, as he watched Disney World's construction costs gradually rise from a rejected $100 million in 1964 to $200 million in 1968 to $300 million in 1970 and then eventually a whopping $400 million in 1971, Roy tried to contain costs wherever he could, which is why when Walt's brother saw the Imagineers designing all new dark rides for Fantasyland at Disney World, he's like, he was very vocal when it came to his objections. It's like, why are we in reinventing the wheel here? He supposedly exclaimed. If Mr. Toad's Wild Rod, Snow White's Scary Adventure, and Peter Pan Flight are good enough for Anaheim, they're good enough for Orlando. So the Imagineers reluctantly acquiesced to Walt's brother's request and abandoned their plans to develop all new dark rides for the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland section. Though whatever cost savings Roy thought would eventually come about by reprising Disneyland's dark rides turned out to be nil, largely because Wed decided to completely update the look of Snow White, Mr. Toad, and Peter Pan from what had been previously designed and built in Disneyland, so... Whatever money Roy thought he was saving the company wound up being spent anyway. 
Which isn't to say that Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom wound up being entirely Washington Irving free. After all, Liberty Square does have Sleepy Hollow, which is that quick-service snack shack that serves funnel cakes and waffle sandwiches that you'll find to your right right after you cross the bridge from the hub to get into this part of the theme park. Rather than replicate the southern gothic exterior of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion, the Imagineers decided to go in an entirely different direction with this e-ticket's exterior when it was decided that this attraction would be Liberty Square adjacent. To be specific, since so many of Washington Irving's stories were set in and around pre-colonial America, it was decided that Disney World's Haunted Mansion would be built in the style of the Hudson River Valley. With the idea here being that this foreboding red brick structure would fit right in should it ever be relocated to the shores of the Hudson near the foothills of the Catskills. And that is pretty much the way things stayed for the first 25 years that Walt Disney World was in operation. It wasn't until the spring of 1995 when Disney, who at that time were, were looking to build on the success of Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, which had been launched as a one-night-only hard-ticket event back in December of 1983, but by 1995 had already expanded to a six-night after-hours holiday celebration at that theme park. These managers had now set their sights on Halloween, which was completely understandable. After all, Universal Studios had started its Fright Night offering back in 1990, the very same year that that theme park had first opened to the public. And in in just five years' time, that after-hours hard ticket had grown from a three-night-long affair to 12 full nights of frights. And, you know, given the huge amount of money that Universal was now making off of its its since-renamed Halloween Horror Nights, well, Mickey now wanted in on that action as well. But, of course, Disney wanted a family-friendly Halloween event to counter what Universal was offering. They wanted the stages event in the Magic Kingdom to then take advantage of all of the operational experience that this theme park staffers now had from running Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Parade. But what would a Halloween party that was held inside of the Magic Kingdom actually look like? Well, for starters, Disney World's entertainment department decided to take full advantage of Tomorrowland's recent rehab. Uh, That side of the park's retro future-that-never-was look had debuted just one year earlier in October of 1994. And they did this by having aliens wander all over that land. Meanwhile, over in Frontierland, this recreation of the American West was transformed into a ghost town, where, thanks to the, the magic of dimensional sound, an unseen stagecoach would regularly roll through the streets. Meanwhile, over at the hub, Cinderella Castle was shrouded with mist as eerie lights and shadows play across its spires. And in Adventureland, all of the area lights were turned down just a tad so that this side of the theme park would then appear to be lit only by torchlight. Which all sounds like a lot of fun. But the part that people remember best from the very first Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party was the genuinely scary part. And this is where people stood in a fog-enshrouded Liberty Square as Mr. Knickerbocker, a cadaverous storyteller clutching a whale oil lamp, told the tale of Ichabod Crane. And as this Washington Irving story reached its climax, who should come riding up out of Frontierland but a really-for-real headless horseman, 
who, after making his black Percheron rear back, tossed an actual jack-o'-lantern at the feet of the storyteller before going back the way he came, riding off into the darkness that now enshrouded Frontierland. It was very exciting and dramatic, but also extremely hard to pull off. You see, in order for the Headless Horseman to make his dramatic appearance in Liberty Square at full gallop, that then meant that the streets of Frontierland had to be completely cleared of guests ahead of time, which took a lot of cast members to do. And then, this street had to stay empty for almost five minutes so the Headless Horseman could first enter from backstage at the Magic Kingdom, following the route that Polarade floats do when they're entering and exiting that theme park. He then rode up to Liberty Square, tossed the pumpkin, and then turned around and galloped back through Frontierland, quickly exiting the park the way he came in. And as excited as people were who got to see the Headless Horseman up close and in person during this live show in Liberty Square, there were thousands more who were mad, or at the very least disappointed, because they had been in the wrong place at the wrong time at the Magic Kingdom when this live version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was being presented. Which is why, as Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party moved from being a one-night-only hard-ticket event to a multi-night seasonal presentation, Disney World Entertainment decided that something needed to be done to increase the Headless Horseman's availability and visibility. Which is why the ghostly appearance of this Washington Irving character was changed to pre-parade entertainment for Mickey's Boo-to-You Halloween party. Now, the upside of doing this is that everyone standing along the Magic Kingdom's parade route waiting for Boo-to-You then got to see the Headless Horseman in action. The downside was that the cast member who was playing the horseman, who, let's remember, is wearing a heavy period costume that kind of redefines the term limited visibility, now had to ride the entire parade route on the back of a very large, powerful black horse at a good clip. Now, this could be extremely problematic in Orlando, which is known for its sudden and fierce rainstorms, which can then result in slick pavement. And on the night of October 8, 2012, these conditions resulted in the Headless Horseman taking a tumble. His horse somehow lost its footing while passing through Liberty Square, and the two of them crashed to the cobblestones in front of a street full of partygoers. Thankfully, neither the horseman or his steed were injured in this fall, though as a direct result, the Headless Horseman's appearance prior to the start of the second Mickey's Boo to You Halloween party of the night was cancelled so that the, both the horse and the rider could then be examined for injuries backstage. Given that the horse that was used in this portion of Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party came from Tricircle D Ranch, which is where all the horses that are used around the Walt Disney World Resort, from the ponies who pull Cinderella's coach over at Disney's Wedding Pavilion to the Clydesdales who haul those fully loaded trolleys up and down Main Street at the Magic Kingdom, that's where these animals are stable. And given that Tri-Circle D Ranch is located at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort, well, the thinking was that Fort Wilderness should be able to get in on some of this Halloween fun. Which is why, starting in the early 2000s, the campground used to present a Halloween-themed hayride. Your ride would start in front of Pioneer Hall, but before your horse wagon actually got into the wilderness portion of Fort Wilderness, you'd then encounter a ghostly storyteller who I'm betting was called Mr. Knickerbocker, who needed transportation to Crockett's Tavern. Your driver would agree to give the storyteller a lift, but only if he'd agree to tell everyone who was already on the wagon 
A tale as they traveled through the ever-darkening woods around Fort Wilderness. The ominous mood that had been created at the very start of this hayride was temporarily disrupted when you got down to the shore of Bay Lake. Here your driver would pause so that everyone could watch Wishes as this firework spectacular exploded of the Magic Kingdom. But once Wishes was over, it was time to head back into the forest so that the storyteller could then recount the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Now, what was really cool about this horse-drawn live theater was the way that Washington Irving's characters actually came to life. As Mr. Knickerbocker, the storyteller, mentioned Ichabod Crane, suddenly there he was, right beside your wagon, the, the gangly schoolmaster on an equally gangly-looking horse. But at this point in the, in the trip, you've reached a fork in the road, and Ichabod and his horse go one way, and the wagon full of guests go the other. It's now that the storyteller starts talking about what happened to Ichabod Crane on that long-ago Halloween night when he ventured into Sleepy Hollow and came face-to-face -face with... Well, I, I guess you can't come face-to-face -face with someone who doesn't have a head, but, but you get the idea. The storyteller gets to the part where Ichabod meets up with the headless horseman, and who now comes galloping up to the wagon out of the murk but the horseman himself? And I have to tell you, folks, I, I got to experience this in the early 2000s. And if you were sitting at the back of this hay wagon as the horseman came galloping up out of the darkness, the effect was terrifying. I mean, the head of the horseman's black steed is mere feet away from the back of the wagon. I could feel the animal breathing on me. And then as soon as he appeared, the horseman slips off into the shadows. Eventually, your hay wagon arrives back at Pioneer Hall, and Mr. Knickerbocker steps off the wagon, and he scuttles off into the darkness, presumably headed to Crockett's Tavern. But as you yourself get off the hay wagon, well, it's hard to ignore the smashed jack-o'-lantern that's now on the ground. One that wasn't there before we left, and one that looks very similar to the one that the storyteller described that the Headless Horseman had heaved Ichabod Crane's head, which is supposedly why the schoolmaster was never seen again in Sleepy Hollow. And speaking of never being seen again, Fort Wilderness discontinued its Halloween hayrides in 2007, supposedly because Disney's lawyers felt the combination of tourists and live horses traveling along through a darkened wood along a rut-filled dirt road, that was just a lawsuit waiting to happen. So for nearly a decade now, Fort Wilderness has been Halloween hayride free. Likewise, the more private, more expensive version of the seasonal experience, the haunted carriage ride, is no more as well. Which isn't to say that people who stay at Fort Wilderness Resort and Campground don't, upon occasion, have encounters with the Headless Horseman. In fact, the way I hear it, if you go to Chippendale's Campfire Singalong on certain nights in October, especially those nights that are close to October 31st, All Hallows' Eve. The Headless Horseman has been known to appear at this kid-friendly event. If you are looking to get a great shot of the Disney version of this Washington Irving character, you're far more likely to get the photograph you want of this fiend at Chippendale's Campfire Singalong than you are by attending Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. And that's largely because at Fort Wilderness, the horseman actually gets to linger a little before the horseman then has to take their steed back to Circle D Ranch. And speaking of circles, I feel like I should now circle back to where this Y4 actually started 
mean, let's remember, this was originally supposed to be a special Halloween-themed edition of the podcast, but unfortunately, the second half of the show didn't wind up getting posted online till just before Thanksgiving 2016. But on the upside, I'm, I'm hoping that this supersized edition of Y4 then gave you something lengthy to listen to in the car as you drove over the river and through the woods to grandmother's as we go. Anyway, again, thanks to Douglas Johnson for submitting the original email for the special two-part edition of Y4, the question that this show wound up being built around. And if you'd like to have one of your own questions answered as part of a future podcast that will be posted on Bandcamp, please send that query along to y4 at jimhillmedia.com. Again, that's y4, all one word, folks, at jimhillmedia.com. Beyond that, thanks for listening, folks, not to mention all of your patience and understanding. And a special thanks to Aram Adams, who always does such a terrific job with the production end of this podcast. That's it for this month's Y4. Look for the next installment to pop up online during the third week of December, right ahead of the holidays. Until then, you folks take care.